0: Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast brought to you by Feros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete
1: Timms and I'm Tristram Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and am a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy.
0: Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is Growing Bold and Indigenous Disability and our guest is Dr. Scott Avery, a Senior Lecturer in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Disability at Western Sydney University and an advisor at the First Peoples Disability Network of Australia. In this episode, we'll attempt to get to the bottom of why Aboriginal people experience disability at a greater rate than non-Indigenous Australians and what needs to be done to help Australia's first people with disability. Dr Scott Avery, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation. Looking forward to the
0: conversation.
1: So, Scott, the very concept of disability is foreign in many Aboriginal communities, and there's no equivalent word for disability in many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. Can you tell us how our Indigenous people view what we call disability?
2: Look, if you want to understand Aboriginal disability uh, from an Aboriginal perspective, you kind of need to cast your mind back some uh, 25,000 years to ancient times. And um, out in New South Wales, uh, there's a, a... Uh, National Park, Lake Mungo Park, and amongst them are some of the oldest Aboriginal footprints um, known on this earth and they're embedded in clay. And amongst those footprints, there's this single right line of footprint. So it goes right footprint, right footprint, right footprint. There's no corresponding left footprint. And the Aboriginal elders out at at Lake Mungo said, well, that's actually a one-legged man on a hunt. And um, it was, you know, they did some more investigation and said, well, this man's actually part of it. He's not, he's actually active hunting um, and he's part of his community. And what this speaks to is a culture that is inclusive of people with disability. So we don't actually see uh, disability in a negative as we're often taught to think of, that, that notion of disability The dis part, the negative part, was actually introduced as part of the colonising process um, when Europeans came to Australia and it just became institutionalised. It's actually a concept that was developed overseas in Europe, you know, the late 1800s and evolved from there. So culturally, this idea that um, people are lesser is, 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 as you said, it's a foreign concept. So we do tend to take all comers. Um, and that's, uh, there's a blessing of that, but it actually makes it difficult to navigate some of the support systems, which are predicated on people actually being able to identify as having a disability or being diagnosed. So, there, so there's a really complex mix of cultural and social problems at play here.
0: So what impact on a whole did colonisation actually have on the disability perspective of the Aboriginal community?
2: So with colonization uh, there's two parts of the colonization story at least as many actually but a lot of people know about how aboriginal people were dispossessed from their land and often violently so but at the same time this idea of disability was imported so you got to think in you know the late 1700s the european um, industrial revolution was going on at that time that was a very novel concept back then and people that they were starting to industrialise the production process and people were seen as a commodity. And the origin of disability was said, look, if you're not able to participate in the production process, the streamlining of the production process, you are disabled. And that come, comes from Europe. And that was actually imported into the colony of New South Wales at the same time. So if you're Aboriginal person... Uh, You're getting dispossessed from your land. But is you also a person with disability? You're kind of getting othered from society. So one of the early things that came um, in the colony was the idea of the asylums where people were basically picked up and, and hidden away from society. And that's something that come from, you know, early 18th century Europe and England. Um, so you've got these two things going on. So the idea in the whole story, the social history of Aboriginal people with disability hasn't been told and hasn't been conveyed because it's just been hidden away from society.
1: And that effect would have had enormous um, influences on marginalising people with disability, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability in Australian society, wouldn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. And and you actually see some of the social issues and so some of the inequality that Aboriginal people with disability face now. You can almost trace it back to those early days because a lot of the idea of othering and marginalising people those practices become institutionalised. Um, so one example I'll give to you is in relation to criminal justice. And so, as I mentioned, early, in the early 1800s, they, they had what they used to call the idiot houses. Um, that's a very confronting language now. But the, the, the idea of the idiot houses in the 1800s was that they would pick people up with cognitive impairment and hide them away from society. Now, if you take that practice and you look at um, juvenile justice, so if you have a look at the extraordinary rates of Aboriginal people with disability, particularly cognitive um, impairment in juvenile justice, uh, basically 0.03% of the population, so less than half a percent of the population, is making up something like 36%. Mm. of people inside juvenile justice. So that's an extraordinary difference there. And you kind of think, well, that practice of hiding Aboriginal people with disability away from society still continues. We call it juvenile justice. We've got it a much more palatable aim. But we haven't really altered that idea of othering and marginalising people.
0: So, Scott, as we heard in the intro... so. Aboriginal people experience disability at a greater rate than non-indigenous Australians.
2: why do we why is that? Look I think that's a, that's actually a big question we really need to look at but I think what happens is the um, rate of avoidable disability is greater in Aboriginal communities compared to mainstream um, or non-Indigenous communities. And a lot of that has to do with access to sort of early intervention support. So an example I might give is someone with diabetes. So if I'm in a metropolitan area and I have access to health services, I might be diagnosed with diabetes and it's considered like a chronic illness that I can manage. I might have some medicine or some therapies that I can access. To stop my sort of pre-diabetes converting to a fully fledged diabetes, so in our Bristol community, there's a lot of that um, early intervention, preventative health. Um, access is not there. So what happens is that the what is a chronic disease becomes an acute disease because no one's kind of stopping that pathway. Um, and so really something like diabetes is a chronic disease in non-Aboriginal communities. It's, pre-di- it's pre-disability in um, disability. Another example has to do with um, hearing health. So a lot of Aboriginal children encounter a lot of primary uh, hearing health problems. But what happens is they keep getting ear infections like otitis media, and it's not treated and not picked up and diagnosed and, and um, corrected. That can then turn into a longer term uh, disabling, um, a longer term disability. Um, you know, long-term hearing impairment just because it hasn't actually been managed in the early stage. So that's one of the possible reasons, but I don't think we really know and I don't think we've done enough work in actually identifying what's the real source of some of these digging down into why such a different rate. You know, it's almost 2.2 times the rate Mm. um, of of, um, non-Indigenous people.
1: Mm. And another... um piece of research, uh, said that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability are mostly cared for within their extended family rather than by professional service providers. Um, is there any insight as to why that might be the case?
2: There's a lot of cultural roles that take um, come into it. And again, when I'm talking about the research, I so said this is just, you know, it's a very underserviced area of research, this. But cultural roles tend to be, um, so Aboriginal women, the aunts, the aunties, tend to take an informal caring role for people with disability in their communities. Um, But often this is unsupported, um, so it's not like that they're... they're, um, uh, denying the support you know or turning support away they're actually doing it because the cultural roles tend to that that's their cultural role um and Aboriginal people have to do a lot of workarounds so in, particularly in remote communities things like you know the footpaths might not be in the you know the same state as you might get in um, metropolitan areas so people are kind of saying well, We need to work around that just to have a quality, the best quality of life we're able to make for ourselves. Um, But what happens is all these work around kind of get, just kind of lets governments who could be better at providing some of these support off the hook. Um, And I think this is one of the things that we want to draw attention to is the burden this places on the informal carers when they have to operate in an unsupported capacity.
0: Yeah, so the support is not really co- culturally appropriate. I, um, I found an excerpt from the Australian Human Rights Commission, Social Justice and Native Title Report in 2015, which I thought was very important. A young Indigenous woman by the name of Hayley said, I grew up without being accepted. I had to choose between my identity as deaf or Aboriginal. I went to a deaf school and I didn't have the same opportunities as my brother and sister to celebrate being Aboriginal. I find that quite important. So there's, she got the support to go to the deaf schools, but she didn't. It wasn't culturally appropriate. She sort of felt separated from her actual aboriginality, if that's a word. So how do we address that?
2: Look, the way that um, service systems and policies are designed in um, in Australia, and kind of you, you see this. I mean, right through the world, they tend to focus on one aspect of marginalisation. So they might might do a lot of work, you know, there's, for example, a close the gap framework which looks at Indigenous disadvantage Um, and the national disability strategy might look at disability but they're not connected. So if you have both, what happened, and the way it's designed is, well, look, if you're an Aboriginal person, you'll get picked up. And it's almost incidental if you have disability, and the opposite applies in the disability strategy. Look, if you're a person with disability, you uh, you'll get picked up if you're. Um, an aboriginal person but it's incidental to how they design and the thing is if you have marginalized on you can get multifaceted marginalization so you might experience structural racism and structural ableism because mm. of your disability then that compounds and what's getting found out now is those kind of a policy and service systems that focus on one aspect of your marginalisation, but not no, not both, are finding um, getting found out that they're not adequate to capture that sort of unique, multifaceted discrimination and structural factors. So if you are an Aboriginal person with disability, often you kind of have to choose. Um, and this come up in education system, funnily enough, with my research. And people saying, oh, they had to tick a box, but it's kind of they're allowed to tick one box. Mm. Can I tick being an Aboriginal person or could I tick, um, I need some um, extra support to support my child with disability? It's like you couldn't have both. Yeah. So we're trying to draw attention to this notion of, look, if you have both, um The policy frameworks that operate independently of each other need to talk with each other a little bit more. And the way to do that is actually engaging with the people themselves, Aboriginal people with disability, because they don't kind of put themselves in boxes. They don't live in silos. They have to deal with this with this sort of bureaucratic arrangement that's organized on one aspect so i'd like i think the way to solve that is hearing more stories about the experiences of aboriginal people with disability and getting them to have greater impact and influence in how policies and services are designed to make them both culturally inclusive and disability inclusive
0: scott you have, you're hearing impaired what was your experience, just off the back of that, the culturally appropriate support? What, how did, what was your experience growing up?
2: Look, it's funny. Mine, mine, am profoundly deaf. So um, it was like you get to pick one thing, and mine was the deaf story, I <laughs> guess. Um, and I increasingly uh, got involved through the First People Disability Network, and was probably, you know, learned a lot around the culture and how important it was, and. What I've found is that identifying to the Aboriginal culture gives people a strength. So they would it was something they could be proud of and positively um, assert their identity through. And that's certainly something with me as well. And what it does, it kind of... Um, counteracts some of the discrimination you get in other aspects of your life, that you're part of a community because that's where you're, if you're an Aboriginal culture and that you're actually part of a community and people encounter so many aspects when they're on their own, they kind of get picked off the experience and the discrimination they get it could be racism, could be ableism, but it's very isolating. And what the Aboriginal culture it gives a way for people to come together so they share an experience in a positive, affirmative way. And I think that's what I've enjoyed so much about the nature of my work because I'm so closely affiliated with an organization, a fantastic organization called the First People's Disability Network. And they're an Aboriginal community organization, and you really do feel like you're part. Part of a family, and there are other Aboriginal organizations, you know, they're out there doing service work or doing research, and you do feel like you're included. Um, because it comes back to what I was saying before about this culture of inclusion. Aboriginal people do this intrinsically. It's innate to them. It's part of their DNA. It's only kind of when you leave your community structures that you encounter some of this notion of, you know, the deficit-based kind of, you know talk around you know, disability. You know, you, we are someone that needs to be fixed. Someone needs to fix my hearing. You don't get that with the Aboriginal community. You're more accepted. So that's my experience. I, I draw a lot of strength from being part of that. You know that Aboriginal culture.
1: Absolutely amazing in terms of that that community engagement and um, overcoming that isolation. How do we take that that particular concept of disability? more broadly throughout Australia, because as someone with a disability myself, um, it's always a negative connotation of, of needing to be fixed and so on and so forth. How, how do we take that and share that with more people?
2: Look, it's funny you said that because I've just been writing a paper and I thought a lot of people with disability look to this culture of inclusion and go, we want that, you know, even if you're not <laughs> Aboriginal. Yeah. So, I, look, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to overreach here and where we're at, uh, I think what we've done is we've found this wonderful um, culture, a cultural value of inclusion, and, and it's supported by the research to say, look, it exists. Aboriginal people with disability participate in community and culture the same rate as non uh, as ab- Aboriginal people without disability, and it has a positive effect on the health. So that's where we're at. That's what we know through the research, and we've been, we, we've exposed this wonderful idea, which counteracts some of the deficit. I think the frontier is is exactly where you're at. How do we actually make this work in a service setting? And what it requires a bit of. It does require a bit of a mind shift to how you see services. So you don't see people as uh, people who need to be affixed or accommodated. It's about how do we include them? It's all about inclusion. And so it's a bit of a mind shift for services to take. And I would hope us talking like this on this podcast here today, people are thinking about some of the services that they might provide and going, how do we build in this inclusion as sort of frontier work in our service work? I think that conversation's still needing to happen, but I think. We're getting ready for it to have that conversation now.
0: I think it's a, definitely a conversation that needs to be had. Now, Scott, we always wrap these episodes up with one question relating back to the title of the show, and that is, what does living a bold life mean to you?
2: Look, I just think it means being proud of who you are, being able to wake up and just get on with your life. Um, you can, I can, I'm, like I said, I'm I'm proudly Wurmi, which is my. Um, Aboriginal nation, but I'm also profound proud of my profound deafness. Funnily <laughs> enough, so I enjoy it. You know, it's something that it's a beautiful thing. You know that I have it, um, and I can I can be like that, and people don't then see that as anything different. And I think that's what's being bold is that everyone, every person with disability, should be feeling like that that their chest pumps up, that they're part of a wonderful community. So.
1: Uh, Dr. Avery, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grow Bold with Disability podcast brought to you by Ferros Care. And listeners can find out more about Dr. Avery's work and the great work being done for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Uh, Scott, thank you so, so much for your time today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, then please take a few moments to pop over to iTunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold. This podcast is brought to you by Feros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold and for over 25 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.